HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Heritage Radio Network on Tour was recorded at Slow Food Nations 2017, a festival to taste and explore a world of good, clean, and fair food for all. Slow Food Nations took place in Denver over the weekend of July 14th through 16th and included panels, workshops, roundtables, cooking demos, farmer's markets, food tastings, and more. Heritage Radio Network's Kat Johnson traveled from Bushwick to the Mile High City to report on this first-of-its-kind international gathering presented by Slow Food USA. Heritage Radio Network on Tour is made possible by the support of the Julia Child Foundation. Welcome back to our coverage of Slow Food Nations 2017 from Denver, Colorado. I'm Kat Johnson for Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Nat Bradford, a farmer and landscape architect from South Carolina. As a farmer, he maintains the breed line of his family's 170-year-old heirloom, the Bradford Watermelon. Thanks for joining me, Nat. Glad to. Thanks for having me. Um, So let's start with the Bradford Watermelon. There's a lot of folklore surrounding the history of it, and it was featured on PBS series Mind of a Chef. So tell me about some of these stories that you heard growing up. Are they true? All right. You know, I I thought that they were myth as well, but... um. When this segment came out on Mind of a Chef, excuse me. <coughs> when the segment came out on Mind of a Chef, they had uh, captured some of these stories of families being poisoned, or you know, someone poisoning the watermelons in the field to protect them. Well, I didn't share any of those stories with David Shields when I met with him, and um, it was neat because it started to make me think, you know, maybe these stories are true. There was a story in our family that was passed down. And my great-grandfather, Chief Bradford, not chief because he's Indian, but chief because he was the chief farmer mm-hmm. of that area. There was a story from my grandfather about him that he noticed watermelons were disappearing from his field. And so a very simple way of, you know, keeping people out. He put a sign out saying that one of these watermelons has been poisoned. And the way the story went was the next day he went back out to the field and the one was scratched out and the two was written in its place. <laughs> so I guess the, the perpetrator thought if he can't have them, neither can you know, great granddaddy chief. So I guess there's some credence to it. That's great. Um, a lot of people for a while thought that the Bradford watermelon went extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, why did they think that? You know, um, it really disappeared from cultivation in the mainstream agriculture 
around the early 1900s. And the reason is industrialized agriculture came about. Family farms were disappearing, and there were less farmers and more people um, needing to be fed, and they weren't growing their own food. So these seeds that had been a mainstay in families and passed down for generations, now these farmers couldn't provide for their local community. They had to provide for their community, for themselves, and for big cities where no food was being grown. Um, That changed the face of agriculture. Now shippability became a major issue. You know, how do you get fruits that aren't shippable to these big cities and in any kind of good condition? Our watermelon, as well as many other fruits and vegetables of the time, were bred for flavor, not shipping. It wasn't a consideration. You didn't have to worry about walking a watermelon from the field to the table. It's a slow walk, and you don't you don't break it, don't drop it. But so around the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, watermelons and many other fruits were being bred, and and this was with the help of universities for shipping. Watermelons came out with really thick skin, which uh, watermelons get their shipability mainly from the thick skin, not really the thickness of the rind, but the skin. And the flavorful old watermelons began to recede from the culinary landscape because now farmers, instead of growing a half acre of watermelons um, and selling it to the local community, their opportunity now to grow 100 acres of watermelons, load them up on railroad cars and ship them all over the U.S., up to the north and to the uh, out west, they could make a lot more money doing it that way. Even though they weren't flavorful, uh, the north didn't seem to mind you know, because they didn't know what a good watermelon was anyway. And the farmers would grow their own varieties for their family in their own food garden. And so the seed companies had no reason to continue with the seed because nobody was buying the seed. There wasn't a demand for it. They were going to sell the new shipping varieties. All the seed companies began to advertise the new shipper. You know, this is a shipping stable uh, watermelon or shipping stable cantaloupe. And, um, so our watermelon just began to be in people's backyard gardens. And, you know, when the, when the old seed savers died off and no one passed on the seeds, it finally dwindled down to just our family maintaining the seed line. And it was forgotten for three generations. Um, now, there are people in my hometown where I grew up. I sold them to Piggly Wiggly, sold them out of my dad's office. He was a dermatologist. I'd have his hallway lined from one end to the other with watermelons. His, he would treat his patients. They'd come out and pick the watermelon, and uh, they would come back every year, repeat customers for the watermelon. And so it was just a very local phenomenon, not very widely known and um, not really publicized. So it just disappeared from awareness, mm-hmm. and it was thought to have gone extinct. Now now that it's kind of back in a little bit more of the mainstream, at least um, in certain like culinary circles, I guess, um, what, what now is your day-to-day like in maintaining this breed line? It's, it's, um, it's a different mindset. So I've been a landscape architect with my own practice for about, it's getting close to 20 years now. And um, when you start thinking about your growing season, having to get everything done and make all of your money in a few months you know everything's geared up for that those handful of months to grow and produce and make your products 
and uh, you're marketing those for the rest of the year, um, it's a very different mindset. And that juxtaposed with you have to be up with the sun, you have to be out in the field, you have to monitor your crops and be checking for anything that can go wrong. And um, it's it's nice though. One of the one of the most pleasant things that I like about moving back to the farm and living on our land again and bringing the family back is it's a real connection. I wake up in the morning, I sit down at the dinner table, you know, having breakfast, and I'm looking straight out over my work. It's right there in front of me. I don't have to get up and drive anywhere. And it's a uh, it's pastoral, very bucolic setting. And it's pleasing. It's a lot of hard work. You know, it's 100 degrees outside, but there's just there's just real peace and connection in seeing my kids grow up out there and being a part of this. And hopefully, hopefully it'll pass down. Have you talked to other farmers who have similar stories with heirloom um, seeds in their families? And um, if so, what do you kind of connect with them over? Absolutely. Um, because the story is, has become so publicized, we have a lot of a lot of um, folks that reach out to me that find find us, and it resonates with them that we've been saving this seed in our family for many generations. And um, you know what it usually ends up being is, is I meet them at a gas station somewhere or a Waffle House, and we have a seed swap. You know, I'm not going to make them buy my seeds. I want what they have. You know, something that they've preserved. And it's and it's very it's very similar to landscape architecture for me as an artist. The gardens that I create, when I walk through them, I, I see each plant, and it, each plant tells a story. And so when I'm walking through these gardens in my own garden, it's a garden of memories. This plant came from my great grandmother. This came from a good friend who's moved away. This, so the same with building an agricultural model on my land. Now I'm growing something that connects me to the Dutch Fork of South Carolina. This seed is very rare, and it's been passed down in this family for so long. And there's a sense of stewardship, a custodian of his seeds, you know. And to walk through there, it's not just a plant anymore. It's a plant with a face and a family behind it and a story. And that's, again, I, I think what makes it more than just growing a plant or more than just growing food it's connection to people and place so tell me a little bit about watermelons for water which is the philanthropic cause that you started Mm -hmm. with your wife so um, watermelons for water started in 2013 Um, I was not a watermelon farmer you know at the time I was full-time landscape architect the story of our watermelon had just come out in fall of 2012 and there was this immense pressure and expectation to have watermelons available for the public again and um, we didn't grow them beyond for our own eating for family and friends and we weren't selling them anymore Um, but there's this expectation to have a field of watermelons to make available so um, I needed something to give it a little more meaning to drive three and a half to four hours from Seneca, South Carolina, where we lived and had my practice, back to the farm in Sumter, spend the weekend there growing watermelons. And why am I doing this? You know, isn't it enough that I'd satisfied 
my desire, the, the question was, is our watermelon the same as this old one that I'd read about from the 1800s? And my question had been satisfied, you know, so I was content with that. Um, so I needed something to motivate me to keep doing it. And it's a lot easier to do things not for yourself when you're doing something for others. It, uh, it gives meaning to it, and it was a chance to come up with um, an example for our kids. And, um, and we really didn't know what we were going to do, uh, and it was in the spring. is one of our Sunday services. The pastor got up and was talking about water projects, well drilling projects um, in Africa. And the big thing that hit me was that the rate of folks dying, mostly women and children, from waterborne illnesses, and the, such a small amount of money needed to treat waterborne illnesses for 25 to 30 cents, you can save a life. And so I started thinking, gosh, you know, I can sell these watermelons, divide that by 30 cents, that's a lot of lives. And so Betty and I instantly, it was watermelons for water, was, was a brainchild. And I got so excited, like, this is it, this is the purpose, this is the meaning. And um, so all of our kids were involved with growing the watermelons that year. And um, we linked up with Samaritan's Purse, who's, it's a really, uh, it's a large nonprofit organization. And they have many different, many programs within their organization. Um, And we were able to earmark our sales. All of the money that we brought in that year went to Samaritan's Purse. And it was earmarked for sustainable farm families in Bolivia to do hand-dug wells at $500 a well. So I think we ended up putting in four wells, I think, in Bolivia. And it was going to help these farming families go beyond just subsistence farming to be able to have a surplus. And irrigation was going to be key to it. So that resonated. You know, it tied water to agriculture. And, um, and it gave us that meaning, that purpose that first year. And so ever since then... We've had this um, connection of our watermelon and water, and again, it's it's 92% water, and it's um, it's a desert crop, it originates in Africa, and so it just it made a, a nice fit. We can grow watermelons, teach sustainable agriculture, clean up the land, and these watermelons can take water that's unsafe to drink. It'll naturally biofilter it through its root system and vines and store it in clean drinking form in these beautiful God-made green vessels that I'll keep for several weeks. And so uh, it's, it's just the best, cleanest water you can drink. That's wonderful. So um, one of the themes of this year's Slow Food Nations is a biodelicious future, and your work with the Bradford Watermelon is all about preserving biodiversity in your corner of the country. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about what brings you to Slow Food Nations this year. You know, um, it gets kind of lonely sometimes out there on the farm. We're a very small organic farm. We're not certified organic, but those are the methods that we employ. And we're surrounded by commercial agriculture. And um, there's not a lot of ears to bounce off these kind of ideas. Uh, so to come to Slow Food, it's a recharge. You get to meet so many like-minded individuals, and you get to share stories, and you get to encourage and build each other up, which is tremendous. I'll take that back, and I'll live off of that energy for another year. 
Um, but you, you also you learn more about the challenges that other folks are facing in other places. And it's a chance to collaborate, synthesize ideas, and have good crossover. Um, so, so I don't get hyper-focused in just what I'm trying to do on my few acres in Sumter, but how does, how does taking what we're doing here cross over and apply and fit into a larger fabric? And how can this maybe working and synthesized together, how does this turn the tide and start to change the way, hopefully change the way agriculture, when we say conventional agriculture in the future, hopefully it's going to be something more like this. That's great. Well, hopefully we'll see you again here next year. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Appreciate it, Kat. Thanks.